see. But the worst is Philly. Clutch Atkins. Okay, George, you doing okay? Okay, somebody's recording this for Vincent? Yeah, uh, it's out of focus though and poorly centered. Myself? Okay. No, okay, yeah, the whole thing's out of focus and it's zoomed in way too much, I think. It's too close. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I don't know how to see if I can work this thing. Most, yeah. most people prefer when I'm out of focus. I know that. Let's not get into that. Yeah. <laughs> Anthony, how do you feel? Uh, I'm going to try something. Let me see. Any better? Oh, that's good. Yeah. Better? I just hit something. Don't ask me what I did to it. Yeah, my prescription just got better. Okay. Okay, I'm moving over here. Okay, just trying to figure out where I can get myself centered. Okay. Don't, don't be self-centered. <laughs> what do we say a centering prayer? Whether it be left of center or right of center. Center field. Right down the middle. Okay. Yeah. All right. We've got a lot of work to do. Uh, did anybody, uh, was anybody able to attend the lecture last Thursday? Oh, my. Okay. It was very good. It's, I said, I, I hope that those who took my intro to New Testament course uh, paid attention because. They would hear a lot of things that he mentioned, you know, brought up in that. But it's very good. He's a terrific speaker, great sense of humor, uh, probably one of the top scholars in the world uh, in scripture. So we're lucky. Okay. Uh, tonight, I'm just going to recap Galatians, and we're going to do Philippians and First uh, Corinthians. Next week, I hope to get into uh, Romans, Ephesians. Okay. All right. Just uh, very quickly, we uh, just about finished Galatians last week. Uh, the letter. Uh, the whole point of it is that uh, after Paul converted uh, people at uh, in Galatia. Other missionaries came on the scene after him, and uh, what they did was uh, kind of undermine the gospel that he preached. Uh, Paul had taught the Galatians that they were free from following the restrictions of the Jewish law, and these newcomers now tell them that they now had to accept the Jewish right of circumcision. And Paul is saying, you know, it's not just, uh, you know, something that's... Uh, Incidental, he says, telling them to do that is really an insult to God, because what does that do to the death and resurrection of Jesus? If you can, if you uh, can be saved only by observing the elements of the Jewish law, uh, then that makes really Jesus's death and resurrection unnecessary. Now, in addition to questioning. Uh, Paul's views, uh, Galatians indicate that uh, these people also seem to be questioning 
Paul's authority to teach what he did. That Paul was perverting the gospel that he received from the apostles. Paul answers that by saying, I didn't receive this from the apostles. I'm not perverting a gospel that they handed on to me. I received this in a direct revelation from God. So, of course, the implication is, if you don't agree with this, you're at odds with God, not with the teaching of the apostles. So, not only his message, but also uh, his authorization to preach the gospel is being challenged. So he's saying, and then he goes back uh, about his own conversion. Talks about the fact that he's an apostle. He wasn't uh, given a human commission uh, from human authorities. But his commission comes through Jesus Christ and God the Father. So uh, Paul takes two chapters and he sketches his earlier life talking about the fact that the gospel that was proclaimed by me is not of human origin. I didn't receive it from human source, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Then he talks about his meetings with Kephas. And he said, yes, true, I did go up to see Kephas for three days, but it wasn't really to be instructed by him. It was me informing him of my mission to the Gentiles. And then his second trip to Jerusalem was involving the uh, really the first council of the church. And in it, they had to decide whether or not the new converts uh, from uh, the Gentiles had to uh, or were required to follow the Jewish law, including circumcision, in order to be right with God or justified by God. And they concluded at that meeting that there was no need for Gentile converts to be circumcised. And Paul was given the assurance that uh, that they had uh, he had the blessing of the other apostles. Just as they were uh, in mission to the Jews, he was going to be in mission to the Gentiles. So he was telling these people who were challenging his gospel that uh, not only did not receive it from them, but they corroborated and backed me up. So uh, I'm not uh, perverting anything they gave me. They, in fact, agreed with what I was doing. So in his view, Kephas or Peter, uh, you know, was standing by that decision. All right, the basic issue there in in the letter is that uh, a person's right standing of justification before God doesn't come through works of the Jewish law comes through faith in Christ. A person could be made right with God through the law, there'd be no reason for Christ to die. And then he talks about how the law is so inadequate. Okay, the law talks about the need to follow it, but then when you fail, this is what you have to do. So he's saying that really the importance of the law was torn down by the law itself. Well, it tells you you've got to keep it. Then it says when you don't keep it, this is what you have to do. So he's saying uh, doing the works of the law is not what's important for one standing before God. It's your faith by belief in what you have heard. 
And he talks about, you know, really those who try to become right before God by following the law are cursed. Because the law itself says, you know, the person who can't keep the law is cursed. Okay, the law can't make someone right before God. Because the scriptures indicate a person will find life only through having faith. And he quotes the prophet Habakkuk in that regard. Then, of course, the question is, uh, we were dealing at near the end of class last week, if practicing the law doesn't put a person in right standing before God, and it was never meant to do that, why was it ever given at all? Paul's answer was, the law is given to provide instruction and guidance to the Jewish people, to kind of uh, inform them of God's will, what he wanted them to do, and keep them in line. Until God would eventually come to fulfill his promise to Abraham to bless his offspring. And who was Abraham's offspring? Gentiles, it was everybody. So the law served, as Paul says, like as a disciplinarian for the arrival of Christ. Then he says the Jews and Gentiles who have faith like that of Abraham are Abraham's true descendants, as opposed to unbelieving Jews who claim they're children begging because of their physical descent in the line of Abraham. And then Paul uses the analogy from Genesis 21, the children born of Ishmael and the children born of Isaac. Talks about those who were born of Isaac represent the Christian church. They are born of the promise. As God promised Abraham, he would have a son. Uh, Ishmael was born of the flesh, who represents Jews who don't believe in Christ. So the basic line there is those who have faith in Christ are the true and legitimate heirs of God's promise. The Jews who reject Jesus, don't believe in him, are children born into slavery. And enslaved by the Jewish law submitted to a yoke of slavery. And those who have faith don't submit to that yoke of the Jewish law. Okay, and then the other question was, okay, if you don't have to follow the Jewish law, doesn't that allow Christians, those who have faith, just to do whatever they please, to be lawless? And Paul says, well, you know, uh, if the law was given to provide direction and discipline, Gentile believers don't have to keep it. Uh, aren't they liable to turn into wild and reckless behavior? Paul indicates that uh, Gentile believers in Christ who are not obligated to keep the law, and therefore don't need to be circumcised, are to be totally committed to one another in love, because in doing so, they fulfill the law. So they don't have to keep the law, but they have to fulfill it. You have to keep the law in terms of the Jewish regulations of circumcision, etc. But they have to keep the law that undermined everything that was taught in the Old Testament. And what was that law? To love one another as yourself. So Christians must be enslaved to one another in love precisely because the whole law is summed up in a single commandment. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So you don't have to follow those particular prescriptions of Jewish law, but you have to follow the law that underpins everything. Love your neighbor as yourself. 
Okay, evidently Paul thinks there are two different kinds of laws provided in the scriptures. There are some laws that are distinctive to being Jewish. That would include circumcision and the kosher food laws. And he insists that Gentile converts don't have to keep those laws. He claims in Galatians that those who do so have cut themselves off from Christ. But at the same time, he urges his converts to keep the principle that summarizes the entire Torah. And that principle that summarizes the entire Torah should love your neighbor as yourselves. So you have some laws that are distinctly Jewish, circumcision, and others applicable to all people, which is the law to love your neighbor. Okay, what enables Christians, this is where we stopped last week, what enables Christians to keep all of the laws? He says that uh, Christians, uh, those who believe, receive the Spirit of God through their belief in Christ. They're empowered by the Spirit to do what the law commands. Since those that don't have the Spirit, those who are not believers, aren't, are ruled by their flesh. By nature, they engage in activities that are contrary to the law and the will of God. So those who don't have the spirit you know, live by the flesh, engage in activities that are contrary to the law and to the will of God. He says that in uh, chapter 5 there in Galatians. He says those kind of people are, going to, are never going to inherit the kingdom of God. says those who have faith in Jesus, namely those who are, not those who are circumcised, the ones who will fulfill the righteous demands of God's law. <coughs> now there's a larger question here, which is gonna come up in the later letters, is whether God had abandoned his people Israel by making faith in Christ the sole means of salvation, not the law. Whether God, as a consequence, proved himself to be unfaithful and untrustworthy by not staying true to his promise always to be the God of Israel. Well, these issues are going to be dealt with in Paul's letter to the Romans. Okay, any questions on Galatians there? Is clear, crystal clear? Yeah. I don't know. I must have been. Uh, Kempis was a high priest or something? Peter. Kempis is Peter. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay. Yeah. It's the, uh, you're Kempis and upon this Rago build my church. And he was using the word uh, Petra, Petros then. Mm-hmm. So he changed his name from Kephos to Petros. I remember I just had a brain. Okay. Better to ask. All right, we're going to go to the letter to the Philippians now. And some of this material is just background material. It's not the core of the letter. So, you know, you don't have to slavishly copy all of this. Um, you'll find the information in both Brown and uh, 
Okay, legends of Philippians. We don't know very much about the Christian community in Philippi because Paul doesn't provide as many explicit reminders of their past relationship as he does in the letter to the Thessalonians and the Corinthians. Although the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 16, provides some information. Unfortunately, little of it can be corroborated from Paul's letter itself. Remember I told you, Luke talks about him going to synagogues and converting Jews, etc. Paul never mentions that in his letters. In fact, he says, his mission is to the Gentiles. Peter and James, they, they are to take care of the Jewish people. Now, uh, Paul never mentions, for example, the principal characters in Luke's account of his visit to Philippi. In other words, individuals like Lydia, dealer in purple goods, and the jailer at Philippi. Paul was in jail. Remember, the doors opened and he got out, etc. Paul never mentions any of that in his letter to the Philippians, nor does he mention Lydia. The city of Philippi was in eastern Macedonia. It was northeast of Thessalonica, again along one of the major trade routes through the region. And again, Paul picked areas where there would be, you know, a good population so he could reach people. Paul speaks in First Thessalonians, which we did, of being painfully treated in Philippi prior to taking his mission to Thessalonica. So in that letter to the Thessalonians, he talks about you know, how badly he was treated in Philippi before he came to Thessalonica. In view of their rough treatment, Paul and his companions may not have spent much time there, perhaps only enough time to make some converts, instruct them in the basics of the faith, and then get out of town. Seems to have much time in Philippi. So, you know, he tried to make some converts, instruct them in the rudiments of basics of the faith, and then uh, get out of town because they were unwelcome there. We have little information about the converts themselves there in Philippi. Like the other congregations that Paul established, Philippian church probably consisted of converted pagans. And we know how Paul went about converting them. Uh, he taught them to worship the one true God of Israel, not the multiple gods that they had been uh, worshiping. And also the second thing was to expect the return of his son, Jesus. It seems to be the basic message that he would give him whenever he uh, went to a particular area. Now, trying to figure out when Paul wrote this letter is somewhat complicated, since many scholars believe that, as in the case of the second letter to the Corinthians, Philippians may involve a combination of two or more pieces of correspondence. And we'll see that. It's very obvious. So when we get to second Corinthians, we, we can see maybe three letters there that were somehow stitched together. Here, we'll see that at least two pieces of correspondence are in evidence. 
Now, when you read Philippians, the first two chapters sound very much like a friendship letter written by Paul to his converts, very amicable. And the occasion for the letter is pretty clear. He says that in chapter 2, verses 25 to 30. thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all, and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, Therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete your service to me. Okay, for some undisclosed reason, the Philippians had sent to Paul one of their stalwart members, a man named Epaphroditus. E-P-A, P-H-R, O-D-I-T-U-S. And while he was there ministering on behalf of Paul, Epaphroditus became ill. And the Philippians grew concerned. Epaphroditus, in turn, learned of their concern, and he became distraught over the anxiety he had caused hearing that he was sick and near to death. Fortunately, he recovered his health, and he was now set to make his journey back home to Philippi. So Paul wrote this letter to keep the Philippians informed of his situation and to express his pleasure that everything had turned out well. So he's writing this letter to say, you know, Epaphroditus, whom you sent to me, now I'm sending him back to you. After he came to me, he got very, very sick, near to death. You got news of that. You were greatly concerned and anxious about it. I'm happy to tell you he's going to come back to you. You're going to be able to see that he's well. Okay, and everything worked out. Now, Paul sent this letter from prison, chapter 1, verse 7. It says, I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. So he mentions that he's in prison at the moment. We don't know where he was in prison or why, except that it was in connection with his preaching. And he uses this letter to, to comment on his adversity. to assure his congregation that everything turned out for the good. He's writing a letter to comment on his adversity, the problems he's facing, and to reassure them that, you know, everything in the end worked out for good. He says as a result of his imprisonment, which you would think would be you know, a, a 
real problem, others have become emboldened to preach. So others have stepped up and you know went out and preached the gospel. Well, he was unable to do so. Mentions that in verses 12 to 18 in chapter 1. I want you to know that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. You would think that would put the mission of the gospel back, me being in jail. But he says, actually it served to advance the gospel. So that it's become known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Most of the brethren have been made confident in the Lord because of my imprisonment and are more bold to speak the word of God without fear. So it's, it's, uh, it's kind of uh, prompted others to step up, uh, profess their faith, and to preach it as well. <coughs> Paul uses his own situation to explain the suffering, that's, that suffering is the destiny of Christians in this present age. He says, you know, my imprisonment, you know, that's our lot while we're here in this world. We're destined to suffer. Okay, it's a message similar to that which he proclaimed in his letter to the Corinthians, which we'll get to. Paul continues by providing some general words of admonition. This was common in friendship letters. He says the Philippians are to be unified. They're to serve one another rather than themselves. They're doing that to follow the example of Christ. And how does he uh, uh, talk about the fact that they must be unified in that famous hymn from Philippians? You all know. Okay, it talks about here. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus who, though he was in the form of God, didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him, bestowed him the name which is above every name, that in the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under the earth. Every tongue confess that Jesus is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. And he prefaces that by saying, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfishness or conceit, but in humility count others better than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And then he goes into the hymn saying, okay, Christ wasn't thinking of himself. He humbled himself. So that's kind of the... uh, motivation and life that he expects the people at Philippi to have. Okay, but that friendly, upbeat tone that characterizes the letter's first two chapters. You know, he's saying, you know, the good news about Epaphroditus, you know, recovering his health, and then the joy of you being able to see him again, the good that he was able to do for me, and then also my imprisonment think that would be kind of a crushing blow to the uh, spread of the gospel. In fact, it didn't turn out that way. Others stepped up and the gospel continued to spread. And he invite, encourages them to remain united, uh, to be humble, uh, and to think of the needs of others. 
Okay, very nice letter. But the tone shifts almost without warning to the beginning of chapter three. In fact, if we didn't know that there were two more chapters left in the book, it would appear that the letter was drawing to a close at the end of chapter two. Paul has explained his own situation, he's given some admonitions, and he stated the purpose of his writing and provided a concluding exhortation, which was, finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It's chapter 3, verse 1. So that sounds like the letter is coming to the end. Okay, nice letter. Patting the Philippians on the, the back, saying, you know, you, you're going to have good news. You'll see Epaphroditus again. Now, why does Paul say, finally? then change the subject completely, continue writing for another two chapters. The words that follow are hard to understand in the immediate context. He says there in 3.1, to write the same things to you is not troublesome to me, and for you it is a safeguard. But to ask yourself, why would anyone find his exhortation to rejoice troubling? Just told them, you know, rejoice in the Lord. Why would they find that trouble? And then, right after that, Paul launches into a, a vicious attack on people who are his enemies. Presumably, people in Philippi. He calls them dogs, evil workers, those who mutilate the flesh. And then he defends his own understanding of the gospel against these false teachers. So all of a sudden, this uh, peaceful letter of friendship has now become a harsh letter of warning. To all the nice stuff in the first two chapters, he says, look out for the dogs, look out for the evil workers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the true circumcision who worship God in spirit, glory in Christ Jesus put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if any other man thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. I circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. You know, count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth, knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things. Count them as refuse, in order I may gain Christ and be found in him. And having a righteousness of my own, based on the law, that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. And he goes on. So all of a sudden now, it's like... Wow, what's going on here? Now, the issue of unity within the Christian community takes on an additional twist in these chapters. You know, you praise them for their unity, encourage them to be humble, to look after the needs of others. Okay. We learn in chapter 4 that there are two women, Euodia and Sintiche, 
EU, OTIA, and CITIJA, who are at odds with one another, and they're causing a great disturbance in the community. Chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. I entreat you, Odia, and I entreat CITIJA, to agree in the Lord. And I ask you also, true yoke fellow, help these women, for they have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement, the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. So here Paul no longer deals in an abstract about the need for unity. Now he actually puts names on the problem. I'm talking about Euodia and Syntyche. What's especially interesting is that Epaphroditus is again mentioned in these closing chapters. And if we didn't know better, we would think that he just arrived. Not that he had been with Paul already for an extended period of time. Chapter 4, verse 18, he says, I'm fully satisfied now that I received from Epaphroditus the gifts that you sent. Now it becomes clear why Ephroditus had come, why Paul is writing this letter. Apparently the Philippians have seen him to bring financial contribution. They gave money to Ephroditus to bring to Paul. Philippians have sent him to bring a financial contribution, and Paul is writing a thank you note. So he's I'm satisfied now that I've received from Epaphroditus, the gifts that you sent. Now, the timing of Paul's response is rather puzzling. If Epaphroditus has been with Paul for such a long period of time, long enough to become deathly ill, long enough for the Philippians to get word of it, long enough for him to learn that they were distressed over his illness, and for him then to recover. Why is it that Paul is only now writing to tell them that he has received the gift from Epaphroditus? He must have communicated with them before this regarding Epaphroditus' arrival and illness. So you have in the first part of the letter, you know, this nice, friendly letter saying, you know, Epaphroditus you know, came and helped me here, but he got very, very sick. But fortunately, he's recovered. I know how upset you are, anxious you are to learn about his health. He's coming back home. Going to be rejoicing over that fact. And then he's encouraging them, you know, to uh, remain united, to be like Christ, who envied himself, didn't uh, insist on in his own privileges, his own importance, but became like a slave in the form of man. That's the first line. Now he's talking about, uh, I'm writing to thank you for the gift Ephroditus sent, that you sent with Ephroditus. Now, he's, he says, he's writing this, like, imagine if uh, somebody gave you, you know, visited you at Christmas time, and they gave you a gift from a friend back in your hometown. While they're there, they get sick, very, very sick. They have to be hospitalized, etc. And they have a long recovery time. 
where he gets back to their family back there because they've been sick. They're anxious and murdered him. Now, at months, months later, Paul is writing to them and saying, okay, you're going to have to learn he's recovered. He's going to come back home to you. And then all of a sudden, it's like he's saying, well, I want to thank you for the gift that you sent uh, with Aphrodite you know, for my benefit. Wait a second. Maybe he's just totally forgotten about that? Okay. So how do we solve this problem? Well, one solution is that there are two or possibly even three letters edited together here. Letters that come from different times and were written for different occasions. The least we can say is that there are two letters. Okay, what do we think? Our best uh, solution. Paul had left to pursue his apostolic work elsewhere after he left Philippi. We don't know exactly where Paul was when he was writing this letter or series of letters, whether he was in Rome, prison, or at Ephesus. The only we know is that he was in jail after he left the Philippians. Now, when you look at the letter, we say, okay, the Philippians probably learned of his needs. And they sent him a gift of money through the agency of one of their leading members, Aphroditus. In other words, they entrusted Aphroditus, you know, a sum of money to bring over to Paul, you know, while he was in jail, knowing that, you know, uh, life is going to be hard and difficult. Maybe this will cheer him up and encourage him. Paul thankfully received the gift and learned from Epaphroditus himself, maybe, about two major problems in the community. Some false teachers have begun to stress the need to keep the Jewish law. And two women in the congregation argued over something in public. So he wrote the Philippians a letter partially embodied now in chapters three and four, thanking them for the gift, warning against false teachers, and urging Euodotia and Sinchije to get along, to get your act together, okay? So the final two chapters of the letter, okay, he's thanking them for the gift that they sent by way of uh, Epaphroditus, warns of our full teachers that he hears, and he urges Euodia and Sintiche to get along. Then, after writing this letter, which is chapters three and four, Epaphroditus became ill. The Philippians learned of it, became very concerned. Epaphroditus heard of their concern and became upset. And ultimately, he recovered. In the course of this communication, Paul learned of the improved situation in Philippi. So when Epaphroditus became well enough to travel, Paul sent another letter back with him, a 
friendship letter explaining how things had now fared with him, providing some renewed exhortations to the community to maintain their unity in Christ. Okay, so apparently in the first letter, which is chapter three and four, when he tells the audience to get their act together to get along, now in chapters one and two, he's saying, okay, obviously things have been patched up. Now I encourage you to maintain that unity. Okay, and to look out for each other's good. Not to uh, and to humble yourselves, not to act in a superior manner. So most of that letter there is found in, chap- in Philippians chapters one and two. Now, a scenario of that would explain why there are such differences between the first and second parts of the letter. So I really think chapters three and four are earlier than chapters one and two. Two letters have been stitched together here. Chapters three and four talk about, thank you for the gift that you sent through Epaphroditus to me. Okay. Uh, He's told me about some false teachers that are going around in your community and also about the problems that you already and Sinjite are causing. And one of the things that you don't want to get is in between two women. Okay. So he's saying basically to them, stop all of this stuff. All right. Then he has a follow-up letter when he talks about how Epaphroditus, after he had brought the gift to him, got sick. Very, very sick. How concerned you as a community were about his health. I'm happy to tell you that he was recovered, etc., and sending him back to you. And by the way, you know, stay united. Don't think of anyone as more important than the other. Humble yourself. Don't look to be uh, superior to others. So you see how in looking at that, it makes sense to reversing the last two chapters, putting them first as an original letter, and then chapters one and two as a follow-up. Because the first thing you would do is say, you know, he'd sit down and send off a, a note saying, thank you. Wow, that really boosted me. I'm in jail, etc." But I'm concerned because I hear about these false teachings, and I'm upset that you know two of your members are, you know, having it out with each other. Okay. And then the follow-up letter is to to explain Epaphroditus' train of health, how he got sick, how he got better, and also encourage him now. Hopefully, Yodi and Sinjite had made up. Now maintain that unit. Okay? Don't lose that. Keep as your model Jesus, who emptied himself being in the form of God, took on the form of a slave. So some of the issues that Paul addresses in other letters are found here in Philippians. In the Thessalonians and Corinthian letters, Paul emphasizes that prior to the return of Christ in judgment, suffering was the lot of Christians. So that's why he's saying, you're in jail. Okay, you know, you have to expect this. Even though the powers of evil have begun to be defeated through the cross of Christ, the end has not yet come. This continues to be an age under the dominion of the cosmic powers opposed to God. We're still living in a world which uh, 
is dominated by evil, by the powers opposed to God. And those who stand against this evil will bear the brunt of the wrath of evil. Christians are going to necessarily suffer. All of them will be redeemed when Christ returns. So in the interim before Christ returns, suffering is going to be the lot of Christians. So this message finds expression here in Philippians, where Paul portrays himself as one who suffers for the sake of Christ. Does that in chapter 1, verse 17? It's about uh, okay. Uh, flip me in my imprisonment. Uh, seven. Okay, it talks about my imprisonment, defense, and condemnation of the gospel. So Paul is going to suffer imprisonment, but he stresses that at Christ's return, everything is going to be made right. He says that in chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. But our commonwealth is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will change our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power which enables him even to subject all things to himself. So everything is going to be right when Christ returns. So that's one motif here in this letter to Thessalonians, uh, to Philippians, that you find also in Thessalonians and in Corinth. Okay, this is an age of suffering. Okay. Uh, redemption is going to come when Christ returns. The other motif that holds the two parts of the letter together is the need for Christians to maintain their unity by practicing self-giving love for one another. So he talks about in the second part when he hears about Euodia and Sintiche, telling them to stop squabbling, etc. That's, you know, tearing apart the community. Then the first part of the letter says, maintain your unity. Use Christ as your example. So he requests in chapter 4 that the two women, Euodia and Sintiche, stop fighting. And that motive, motif, rather, is expounded at greater length in chapter 2. Here Paul recounts the actions of Christ on behalf of believers. It's in what we call the Christ hymn of Philippians, chapter 2, verses 6 to 11. It's one of the most poetic and beloved portions of all of Paul's letters. In fact, there's all the marks of an early Christian hymn sung in worship to Christ. See that in several places in Paul's letters. He adapts and uses letters that would be sung at Christian worship services. Father, is that what was referred to as the apostolic kerygma? Uh, I don't know if I've heard it. It's uh, try to say it's a, a hymn to Christ. It's uh, in one sense, all the hymns uh, in all the hymns are uh, you know the kerygma. They're easy to remember, uh, but I don't know if I've ever heard that term referred just to this one. Okay, 
but all the hymns, and the reason Paul uses them in his letters is that they are familiar to his audience, and also they encapsulate in uh, you know in brief form, you know the basics of uh, you know the Kurima. He'll go on later when he talks about I'm handing on to you what I handed what I received at Christ on the night before he died, etc. So again, that's part of the Kurima. He died and was buried and then rose again in accordance with the scriptures. Okay, that's basic kerygma. Uh, so Paul embeds that in his letters uh, by using these Christian hymns. The same thing is true, and uh, we'll get to it when we get to the Gospel of John, the prologue of John's Gospel, chapter 1, verses 1 to 18. is an early Christian hymn. And uh, again, the dogma, Jesus is the word of God, became incarnate, etc., so it's uh, you know it's a, a nice summary of the Christian faith, and one that wouldn't really need a lot of explanation because this is something that's composed in the community and sung or said at their worship services maybe week after week. All right. Now this has all the marks of an early Christian hymn sung in worship to Christ. Paul quotes it in full length because it makes an important point for his Philippian readers. And as I said, it's familiar to the, similar to the prologue of John's Gospel. The hymn's basic message is very, very clear. What's the message? Rather than striving to be equal with God, Christ humbled himself, coming human and submitting to a death on the cross. Rather than striving to be equal with God, Christ humbled himself, becoming human, and submitting to a death on the cross. Now, God responded to this humble act of obedience by exalting Christ above everything else in creation, making him the Lord of all. So Christ, through the act of humility, resulted in his exaltation of everything else in creation, became the Lord of all. Now, Paul doesn't cite this hymn simply because it's a powerful and moving expression of the work of Christ. He uses it because Christ's humble obedience provides a model of action for his followers. The way Christ acted is the way Christians are to follow. They should also lower themselves for the sake of others. Rather than seeking their own good and working for their own glory, Christians should seek the good and work for the glory of others. This hymn makes that point. Christ humbled himself in obedience, lowered himself, becoming human, and as a result of that, he was exalted by God. Christians should do the same thing. Shouldn't seek their own good, work for their own glory. Should seek the good of others and work for the good of others. And when you read the letter, you also notice that Christ is not the only example of self-giving, sacrificial love in this chapter. It's the most important one. But Paul also claims that he himself is willing to be sacrificed 
for his Philippian converts. Chapter 2, verse 17 says, Even if I am to be poured as a libation upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. So he's saying, I'm willing to give myself as a libation, sacrificial offering for you. And he also talks about his companion Timothy. He says he also seeks the interests of others rather than his own. Chapter 2, 19 to 24. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I may be cheered by news of you. Have no one like him who will be genuinely anxious for your welfare. They all look after their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But Timothy's worth, you know, I was the son with the father. He has served me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I hope I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that surely I myself shall come also. He talks about how he gives his life for others, Paul. Then he mentions his companion, Timothy. You know, he's, he's got only your interest at heart, not his own. So the Philippians are to follow these worthy examples, living in unity with one another through sacrificial love. Now, after this letter, we hear nothing more from Paul of his relationship with his converts in Philippi. That's, that's all we, we know about. Okay, so we have this letter, which starts off as a friendly letter, and then gets kind of vitriolic in chapter 3. What's happened? Okay, we, we think these are two separate letters. Okay, the, the second part, chapter 3 and 4, is... Uh, you know, he's, he's thanking them for the gift that they sent to Ephroditus. And Ephroditus has kind of let them know, you know, what's going on. There's uh, this disunity. It's false teachers among you. And then there are two individuals that are uh, you know, undermining the unity of the community. So he's going to address those issues. In chapters 1 and 2, it's a later letter he sends to them saying, you know, like after I sent that thank you note, Poor Ephroditus got sick, very, very sick. You got news of it, you were very concerned about him. Said a good news to report. He's recovered, he's going to be going back to you soon, etc. By the way, make sure you stay united and use you know, Christ as the example of how you should live amongst each other and treat each other. Not trying to elbow yourself to the top, but humble yourself. You know, think about the needs of others. That's your example. And, and in, as I say, he quotes from a, uh, or inserts a hymn to Christ in the context of that situation. Okay. Any uh, questions? Is, it, is there any consensus on why the order was reversed? What's just, we don't know. The thing is that these letters circulated independently. Somewhere along the line, Someone who had access to a number of these letters put them together. But didn't read them first. <laughs> well, <laughs> maybe the way it was presented, one was on top of the other. You know, if somebody hands you a paper, you kind of figure, well, you know, th there's a reason why it's in the order that they gave it to me. But when you read the letter, you say, wait a second, 
we'll find the same problem in Corinthians. You know, if there's a complete reversal, all of a sudden in the middle of things, what happened? It's like being nice to somebody, and next thing, in their face, they're ready to punch them out. And say, what? what did I do? What happened? You know, so we say, okay, the obvious change in tone, language, etc. You know, this nice fuzzy guy all of a sudden become a bear, a lion. You know, what's going on here? So we figure, you know, what makes sense when you look at it is that, you know, the first, the last part is really one letter, and then the first two chapters are really a follow-up letter written to the same community. So in a sense, really, they probably two letters to the Philippians, not just one. But you know, the way they come down to us now and the way they've received into the canon is, is one letter. But uh, you know, just uh, you know. We, you know, unfortunately, in church on Sundays, we read just excerpts from the letter. So we have no clue of all this background and, you know, what precipitated uh, this. Or when we hear that hymn, you know, Christ humbled himself, you know, being in the form of God, and took on the form of a slave, etc. Now we know why, you know, we're encouraged to do the same. That goes back to the Philippians there was an issue you know hopefully it was resolved and i was saying okay now you managed to stitch back that unity and cooperation with one another okay stay with it and the greatest greatest example the model for you to follow in maintaining unity is christ he wasn't concerned about himself and then later in letter he talks about himself and timothy as being examples also not putting him a letter of Christ, a level of Christ, but saying, you know, if you want a human example, okay, I'll, I'll uh, give my companion Timothy a pat on the back, you know, he's toiling for everybody else. He's not in it for himself. And then he talks about himself being willing to even give up his life, you know, for his community, his fellow believers. Anybody out there assume have any questions? Everything is totally clear, right? Brilliant. Okay. Now we're going to take a look at 1 Corinthians, and we'll spend the rest of the evening. 1 Corinthians. So much in this letter. For a city south of Thessalonica. And it was the capital of the Roman province of Achaia. Again, it's typical of Paul looking for a large city. Okay. It's located on the isthmus dividing the northern and southern parts of modern Greece. Greece is up in the north and then goes the south. So it's, uh, Okay, on the uh, dividing line between the north and the south parts of modern Greece. It was a major trade center, also center of communication. And it was served by two major ports within walking distance. So you had a lot of commerce, and people in trades 
in that city. Having one port would be enough, but now I had two major ports. There's a lot of commercial activity going on there. The city was destroyed in the year 146 BC by the Romans. But a century later, it was refounded as a Roman colony. Now, the uh, geographic location was just too strategic to pass it up and not make use of it. Polsheimer was a rather cosmopolitan place. Polsheim, okay, is the home of a wide range of religious and philosophical movements. So it would be a place where you'd hear and see almost anything. Now, Corinth is perhaps best remembered today for the image problem it suffered throughout much of its checkered history. Its image problem would be one that would be caused by those who advocated family values. Now, understand, its economy was based not only in trade and industry, but also on commercial pleasures for the well-to-do. So, what what do you think flourished there? Prostitution, yeah, and also it's a you know sexual uh, things going on there. So, any place there's a port, we have traders and sailors, etc. You know, you're going to have that. Now, some historians suggest that Corinth's tarnished reputation wasn't really altogether deserved. Yeah, in some sense, yeah, but not the way it was. Uh, Lambasic. They think it was rather intentionally tarnished by the citizens of Athens, which was its nearby and biggest rival and the intellectual center of ancient Greece. Kind of think that, you know, just like in uh, Facebook, etc., you put up all these things, mean things about people, they think that this is what happened, that they. At the Athenians kind of uh, did a number on the Corinthians. Not that they didn't deserve a good deal of it, but you know the extent and degree, you know, is kind of over the top. And one way which we kind of think it's true is that it was an Athenian, the comic poet Aristophanes, who invented the verb Corinthianize. And that word meant to engage in sexually promiscuous activities. So if you refer to a place that they were Corinthianizing there, it means that there were sexual excesses, probably prostitution, et cetera. So it was an an Athenian poet that uh, used that term derogatorily uh, against the citizens of Corinth. There's no doubt about it. Uh, you know, it wasn't uh, you know, a clean city. You know, it was like 42nd Street. Uh, you know, before they cleaned it up, 
I've heard it said it was the Las Vegas of its time. Could be Las Vegas, yeah. Just, you know, and again, these, uh, you know, these people are traveling and working hard. And, uh, and again, it was a way for uh, some of the citizens to profit. You know, the congregation that Paul addresses appears to have been riddled with problems. It's one of the things, there's loads of things in Corinthians he's got to deal with. So the whole community is riddled with problems. Problems involving interpersonal conflicts, fighting among themselves, and ethical improprieties. Their behavior is not what it should be. Fighting with each other and also the way they're behaving is scandalous. Now this letter, first letter to the Corinthians indicates that some of its members were at each other's throats. They claim spiritual superiority over one another. And they try to establish the superiority through ecstatic acts that they performed during the course of their worship services. And in particular, what would we be talking about? Well, different members of the community would speak prophecies and make proclamations in languages that no one else, including themselves, knew. What would we talk? What word would we use to describe that today? Tongues, tongues. Talking in tongues, yes. Okay. They were trying to surpass one another and demonstrating their abilities to speak in divinely inspired tongues. Doesn't it sound all that much different from what some places do today. Right. And you know, the whole thing, uh, glossolalia is what they call speaking in tongues. Uh, that goes back to the Acts of the Apostles and Pentecost. But uh, the big difference there, speaking in tongues enabled everybody to understand and hear the gospel, despite differences in language. It was a unifying thing. Everybody heard the gospel message, no matter where they came from, what language they spoke. But this speaking in tongues doesn't bring people together. It divides them because nobody understands what's going on. The message of the gospel isn't becoming clearer. And they are claiming that because they have this ability to speak in tongues, they are better than others. So... Speaking in tongues isn't at the service of the gospel. It's the service of their reputation. That'd be very humble. Yeah. I remember one time, was, oh, I had just come to one of the churches that I was assigned to. They said the morning mass, and one lady came to me after mass and said, oh, I know you're one of us. One of us? Who is us? Well, uh, you're charismatic. You're, you know, and I said, I'm, I'm not. I said, uh, why do you say that? Well, because the way you say mass is never. I said, well, that goes to show you that saying mass reverently is not the exclusive 
you know, ownership is exclusively owned by those who are charismatic. But they somehow came to attribute the way you would say mass, etc., to someone who was a charismatic priest. But again, this is what Paul is dealing with. He's saying, you know, well, they're running around trying to claim that they are better than somebody else because they can speak in tongues at the services. And he's going to go on later and say, you know, why that's not possible for them to claim that. But this is one of the issues. This one-upmanship had evidently manifested itself outside worship services as well. It wasn't going on just in their worship service that they were trying to gain superiority over others. Some people had grown embittered enough to take others to court. Over what? We're not told. It doesn't seem to be religious matters, but you know, either personal conflicts or you know, could be business matters. And on top of that, the personal conduct of community members was not anywhere near what Paul had in mind when he led them away from what he viewed as their degenerate past and then into the Church of Christ. So he says he's scandalized and shocked by their behavior. He says, I thought when I drew you away from your degenerate pagan past into the Church of Christ, you know, that you were going to behave differently. And he makes specific uh, issues. He says that their community meals, some have been gorging themselves and getting drunk, while others who arrived late found nothing to eat. It was one issue. And we'll, we'll deal with all of these separately, okay? Then he says, some of the men in the congregation had been frequenting prostitutes and they didn't see why this would be a problem and that's how far they had you know fallen back into their old ways in fact he says you know this is incredible one of you is sleeping with your stepmother so that's the community that paul addresses as the saints who are in Corinth. Now, if these are the saints in Corinth, I want to know what the sinners look like. <laughs> but these are some of the issues that he has to deal with now, okay? This supposed self-superiority over others because your ability to speak in tongues. And then your behavior at Eucharistic gatherings, you know, you pig out and others are, you know, uh, you know going without food. Then your behavior, especially regards to your sexual activity and you don't see a problem with it and then finally you know you know i hear one of you is sleeping with your stepmother you know that's no no issue for you so uh, when paul opens his letter in chapter one verse two he says there Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both the Lord and ours. So you got to think that he's either trying to uh, shame them, 
embarrass them or you know wake them up you know to uh, to see what they should be and uh, open their eyes to what they are in fact okay a little background now after leaving Thessalonica Paul and his companions who was with them in Thessalonica Timothy and Silvanus they arrive in Corinth and they begin to preach the gospel in an effort to win converts. So they're coming over to Corinth, okay, to win converts. And again, this is an area where, you know, Peter and James and the others who are uh, proselytizing the Jews, uh, this is territory they wouldn't go to. This is pagan territory. So uh, Paul and Timothy and Titus arrive in Corinth, okay, to make converts. Probably they proceeded as they had in the capital of Macedonia, coming into town, renting out a shop, setting up a business, using their workplace as a forum to speak about, speak to those who stopped by. So we try to put in the same memo, basically, you know, uh, you know, to get established. You know, come into town, find a place to uh, apply your trade, set up the business, and then, you know, while you're doing your business, you know, uh, preach the gospel. In this instance, the Acts of the Apostles provide some corroborating evidence. Usually it's at odds with what Paul himself says in his letters. But here, Luke corroborates what Paul says. He indicates that Paul did, in fact, work in a kind of leather goods shop in Corinth having made contact with a Jewish couple named Aquila and Priscilla, who shared his profession in both senses of the term. Both of them had the same career as Paul and uh, Timothy and Sassanese, and they also shared the same faith in Jesus. But in other respects, the narrative that we find in the Acts of the Apostles contrasts greatly with what Paul himself says about his stay in Corinth. For instance, Luke indicates that Paul devoted himself chiefly to evangelizing the Jews in the local synagogue until he was dismissed from there. According to Luke, even after leaving the synagogue, Paul principally converted Jews. It's in the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 18, verse 4 to 11. So he's saying that, you know, Paul is, uh, you know, proselytizing the Jews. But Paul's letter gives an entirely different impression. Most of his converts, given his claim to be the apostle to the Gentiles, appear to be non-Jews. Back in chapter 12, verse 20, Paul tips his hand. He says, you know that when you were pagans, you were enticed and led astray to idols that could not speak. Is that, is that talking to a Jew when he says that? So, you, know, you know, when you were pagans, you were led astray and enticed by idols that couldn't speak. So he's talking certainly about Gentiles and their worship of many gods. 
Now, the majority of Paul's converts were evidently from the lower classes. As he himself reminds them, chapter 1, verse 26, not many of you were wise by human standards. What, what does that say, basically? Not many of you were highly educated, weren't wise by human standards. Well, education would make a person wise. Not many of you were powerful. What does he mean by that? doesn't mean that you're you know, a muscle builder, etc. He said, not many of you were influential in the community. He didn't wield any power. He had no clout. And it also ends up by saying, not many of you were of noble birth. In other words, you weren't a blue blood or an upper class. He says, not many of you were highly educated or influential or from the upper classes. At least some of the Corinthian converts must have been well-educated, powerful, well-born. Otherwise, Paul couldn't have said not many of them were. So there's a small number of them like that. In fact, if we assume that some members of the community came from the upper classes, we can make better sense of some of the problems that the Corinthian community experienced. For example, it would explain why some of those coming together for the communal meal would come early and enjoy lots of good food and drink. They were comparatively wealthy Christians. They didn't have to work long hours. Sometimes they didn't have to work at all. Show up and have a, you know, a big feast. But then there were the poorer members, possibly even slaves, who had to put in a full day's work before they could come together for this communal meal. So you had that, that issue there that explains, you know, it's kind of a mixed bag. But the upper class has no regard for or concern for those who have to put in a long day's work, you know, hungry, exhausted, etc. No, they're living it up, you know, a life of ease. It's called the life of Riley. Uh, and the, the, the poorer members, uh, you know, come exhausted, tired, and without much, if at all, food or money uh, to feed themselves. And the presence of some upper class Corinthians or Christians would also explain why some members of the community were upset that Paul would not allow them to support him. He wouldn't allow them, uh, he wouldn't be, allow them to become his patrons and take care of his financial needs so that he would be free to preach the gospel. Now, that sounds kind of stupid. Somebody's going to say, hey, you know, uh, don't, you don't have to worry about you know, where your next meal is going to come from. I'm going to take care of all of that. You just go out and preach the gospel. You know, I'll be kind of your patron. You know, you had this in the Middle Ages, artists and musicians, etc. You know, some of the great composers were patrons of the kings. And they composed music for functions. Kings and emperors would be involved in. Same thing in terms of in, in Ireland, you'd find... Uh, harpists, etc., troubadours. They'd be going around composing music, flattering their patrons. He's the guy that's giving them money so that you know they don't have to uh, worry about where the next meal is going to come from. In return, they have to cozy up to their patron. 
And that's why Paul, you know, was in, uh, interested in doing this. It was the kind of thing for philosopher back in that Greco-Roman world to be taken into a wealthy household as a resident scholar in exchange for room and board. Paul had his reasons for wanting none of this arrangement. He saw it as putting his gospel up for sale. It would be controlled, okay? He wouldn't be free to preach something that might be offensive or challenging to a patron. But some of the members, the influential members of the congregation found his attitude puzzling, even offensive, turning him down. And that becomes clear in the second letter to the Corinthians. And other problems in the community may also have been related to the differing socioeconomic levels of its members. If we assume that the upper classes in the ancient world would have been relatively well-educated, and that's a pretty good assumption, it may be that the knowledge of some of these people in the Corinthian church allow them to see things differently from the lower classes. Their perspective was different from those in the lower classes. And this led to some differences of opinion in the community. And one example, concrete example of this would be, some members may have thought that eating meat offered to idols was a real danger. It was a no-no, okay? In view of the demonic character of the pagan gods, possibly a lower class view of the the uneducated saw this food was offered to pagan idols. Therefore, you know, it would be, you know, uh, something that would uh, not be uh, welcomed or you wouldn't eat that food. On the other hand, others thought this was just scrupulosity and mere superstition. You know, they are better educated. They know that these pagan gods don't exist. So you're not eating something tainted by pagan gods. There aren't any pagan gods, so you're free to eat them. So again, the difference, the less educated would see a connection between pagan gods and that food. The more educated say, you know, there were no pagan gods. There's only one God. So these people are delusional when they think they're offering something to pagan God. You can go ahead and eat it. There's no pagan God that's tainting this food. Let me give you a break uh, at this point. It'd be easy to do this and to work elsewhere, okay? So we'll get into some of these issues Paul has to uh, deal with. Any questions up to this point? Okay. Uh, hopefully, I'm not losing you. I'm going too slow, too fast. Good pace? Okay. All right. Okay. Uh, a little bit after half past, between half past and 25-2, okay? We'll get down to the real nitty-gritty of Corinthians. Back to Corinthians. I'm sorry, Father, we do have class on Ash Wednesday? Oh, no, no. No, okay, I was going to say. <laughs> All right, thank you. I think uh, Wednesday of Holy Week we might have class. I have to check that again. Yes. I know there's no class Holy Thursday, Good Friday, but I think on the calendar there is class on Wednesday. If I double check it, I'll find out. I think Still. you're right. 
think we're a month or so, a month and a half away from that, though, okay? It's the Thursday class that I have. It's getting savaged. First Thursday was the March for Life, and I had a class. Last week they were off because of the lecture. Then they're going to be off uh, St. Patrick's Day, which is Thursday. So what do you do, extend? Then they're off during the winter recess, and they're off Holy Thursday. That's five wow. Thursdays. That's almost half the semester. Yeah, I know. I, oh, boy. I have uh, passion resurrection narratives. <laughs> oh. So. Light material. Hang on. It's like going into Indy 500. <laughs> okay. Uh, during their stay in Corinth, all his companions appear to have converted a sizable number of pagans to the faith. The Acts of the Apostles indicates that they spent a year and a half there, in contrast to just the three weeks they spent in Thessalonica. So, uh, I think one of the reasons is the number of issues they have, they're dealing with. Paul himself isn't clear about the length of his stay there in, in his letters, but there are indications throughout his letters that the Corinthians and Corinth, at least some of them, had a much more sophisticated understanding of the faith than those in Thessalonica. And that would probably be because Paul spent a great deal of time with them. Unlike the Thessalonians who understood their new religion at a fairly basic level, some of the Corinthians had so much knowledge of their faith they took Paul's gospel simply as a starting point, developed their own views. <clears throat> went in different directions. Now Paul evidently instructed these people at Corinth in the need to worship the one true God and to wait his son from heaven. It's a basic message to the Thessalonians. Thessalonians. The second part of that message to wait his son made significantly less impact on the converts in Corinth than those in Thessalonica. Not surprisingly, Paul seems to make little effort to narrate stories about what Jesus said and did during his public ministry, because that's not his main concern. You know, the uh, public ministry of Jesus is uh, the risen Christ. He does, though, summarize a couple of sayings of Jesus to the effect that Christians could not get divorced. Okay, in chapter 7, verses 10 to 11, it says, uh, is that right? Uh, seven, 10 to 11. Okay, to the married I give charge, not I, but the Lord, for the wife should not separate from her husband. So it says, I give charge, uh, not I, but the Lord. To the married, I give charge, not I, but the Lord. So he's saying, this is something you know, that the risen Jesus spoke about, or the early Jesus spoke about. And then he also says, you should pay your preacher. Chapter 9, verse 1 and 14. So it makes mention of what Jesus said. In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel 
should get their living by the gospel. The two instances where he quotes what Jesus said during his lifetime about marriage, about divorce, and about uh, compensating those who preach. And the other one was he narrates the incident of Jesus' institution of the Lord's Supper, chapter 11, 24 to 28. In other words, I'm passing on to you what was handed down to me the, the night before he died, Jesus. Okay. So those are only the three instances where he makes a reference to the words of Jesus, either quoting them or saying, This is what Jesus commanded. Now he says nothing about Jesus' baptism, his temptation. Transfiguration, preaching of the coming kingdom of God, his encounters with demons, appearance before Pontius Pilate. Okay. All that has to do with the earthly Jesus. All of those things would have been important to the problems the Corinthians experienced. What Paul does say, and say emphatically, is that the only thing he knew was Jesus Christ and him crucified. It says that in chapter 2, verse 2. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. In other words, Paul's main message was about Jesus as the crucified Christ. And it seems that that was the message, or at least a good portion of the Corinthians didn't absorb, at least in Paul's opinion. Okay, in chapter 15, verses 1 and 2, Paul reminds his converts of the good news that I proclaim to you, which you in turn received, in which you also stand, and through which also you are being saved, if you hold firmly to the message I proclaim to you. So it says, the good news I proclaim to you, which you received, which you stand, which you hold, and which also you are being saved, if you hold firmly to the message. And then summarizes the message. For I handed on to you as of first importance what I in turn had received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried. And that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. So that's a, certainly a charismatic summary, charismatic summary there. I hand it on to you. Christ died for our sins. In accordance with the scriptures, he was buried, he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And he appeared to Kephas and then to the twelve. So a primary importance in Paul's preaching to the Corinthians was the message of Christ's death and resurrection. Jesus died, fulfilling the Jewish scriptures. And there is proof that he died. He was buried. And moreover, God raised him from the dead, fulfilling the scriptures. We have proof of that. Jesus was later seen alive. So we have proof of his death because he was buried. We have proof that he was raised from the dead because he was seen alive after his death. So from the very outset, Paul taught the Corinthians that Jesus' death and resurrection was both anticipated in the scriptures, or both anticipated in the scriptures. All through his letter, he appeals to the scriptures to make his points. When he does so, he emphasizes the scriptures were written not only or even especially for the Jews in times past, 
even more particularly for Christians than the present. We're saying scripture is not just something that applies to the Jews of the past. There's something that is application to Christians in the present. All of God's interactions with his people, back in the Old Testament, have been leading up to the present time. It says the Christian community is God's ultimate concern and always has been. In other words, the universal offer of salvation. God didn't come just to save the Jewish people. He had the Gentiles in mind as well. God's ultimate concern was the Christian community because that's a blend of Jew and Gentile. Now, whereas the Thessalonians saw Jesus' resurrection as the beginning of the major climax of history, when he would return, remove the Christians from this world before God's wrath devoured all his enemies, and the resurrection is when he would return take Christians from this world before God's wrath devoured all his enemies. Some of the Corinthians appear to have interpreted Jesus' resurrection in a more personal sense. They saw his resurrection as his exaltation to glory. That they themselves, as those who have participated in his victory, have also come to share. Just repeat that because this is going to be important. But despite Paul's protest, some of the Corinthians came to believe that they had already begun to enjoy the full benefits of salvation in the here and now. They thought that they were enjoying the full benefits of salvation in the here and now because they were members of Christ's resurrected and exalted body. Can you repeat that one more time? Yeah. Okay, despite Paul's protest, some of the Corinthians came to believe that they had already begun to enjoy the full benefits of salvation in the here and now. And I'll flesh that out in just a moment. Why? Because they were members of Christ's resurrected and exalted body. Now, for Paul himself, the Corinthians' idea that they were already enjoying an exalted status couldn't be further from the truth. They thought that they were now in glory, that they were exalted, because Christ was raised from the dead and is now exalted in heaven. They figured that as part of Christ's body, they too are exalted. So, you know, Paul says, you know, this couldn't be farther from the truth. In his view, the forces of evil were to remain in power in this world until the end came and Christ returned. So it says, you can't go back about thinking that you're living an exalted life, you're living in a world where there is suffering and evil. That's going to be the case until Christ comes, the end comes and Christ returns. It says, until then, life will be a struggle full of pain and suffering. It will be comparable to the pain and suffering experienced by the crucified Christ himself. Those who believed that they had already experienced a full and complete share of the blessings of eternity had deceived themselves. 
created immense problems for the church, misconstruing the real meaning of the gospel. So this idea that, you know, Christ conquered sin and death through his death and resurrection, and then was exalted to heaven in glory. Well, they figured, you know, as part of Christ's body, they too were now exalted. Paul saying, no, 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 no. You will be taken into glory and exaltation when Christ returns. In the meantime, you're going to deal with evil and suffering and pain, etc. in this world. Think that you're living in glory land now is a delusion. Eventually, Paul and his companions left Corinth to proclaim the gospel elsewhere, leaving the Christians in Corinth behind to continue the mission of spreading the faith for themselves. Soon afterwards, an acquaintance of Paul named Apollos came to Corinth, and he provided additional instruction to the Christians there. Also going to crop up in this letter. So, so an acquaintance of Paul named Apollos, he comes to Corinth after Paul leaves, and he gives additional instruction to the Christians there. According to the Acts of the Apostles, Apollos was a skilled speaker, and it's clear from Paul's letter here to the Corinthians that he acquired a considerable following in the congregation. We're not certain of the precise course of Paul's journeys, but evidently he ended up in the city of Ephesus not long after he left Corinth. You have to remember letters to the Corinthians are not written while Paul is there in Corinth. It's after he leaves, he's writing back to them. So Ephesus, which is another large urban area, was in the western portion of Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. From there, Paul wrote this letter, 1 Corinthians. Back in 16.8, he says, But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened for me. There are many adversaries. Timothy and Sylvanus had apparently departed from Paul already. We wrote the letter not with them, but with someone named Sosthenes. He mentions that in the beginning of the letter. It was mentioned in only one other place in the New Testament. Mentioned in the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 18, as the ruler of the Jewish synagogue in Corinth and a convert to Paul's gospel. That's what Luke says. Paul obviously wrote this letter, 1 Corinthians, to deal with the problems that had arisen in the congregation. Now, he indicates he's heard of these problems from two different sources, one oral, one written. At the beginning of the letter, Paul states that he has learned about the activities of the congregation 
from Chloe's people. Chapter 1, verse 11. Where am I getting information from? Oh, from Chloe's people. You have no idea who Chloe is. Name doesn't occur anywhere else in this letter, or even the rest of the New Testament. It's one off appearance. We do know that it was the name of a woman, because it refers to her people. And her people is usually taken to mean her slaves or former slaves who had come to Ephesus in their business. And they had met with Paul to pass along some news. Since Chloe owned slaves, she must have been a wealthy woman in Corinth. Whether she herself was a member of the Christian community, uh, we don't know. In any event, her unnamed people must have been active in the Corinthian congregation. Given the information, inside information really, that they passed along to Paul. But they must have been like parishioners of that Corinthian community. So whether her, her former uh, owner, slave owner, Chloe, was a Christian also, we don't know. The news that they give isn't good. What's going on? The church was divided against itself. Different factions claiming different leaders. Each of whom, from Paul's perspective, was trying to usurp the claims of others. Demonstrating their own spiritual superiority Claiming to represent the true faith is expounded by one or another famous authority. So there are different factions claiming different leaders, each of whom, from Paul's perspective, was seeking to usurp the claims of others by demonstrating their own spiritual superiority and claiming to represent the true faith is expounded by one or other famous authority. Paul Kephas Apollos Christ himself. Chapter 1, verse 12. I appeal to you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no dissensions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brethren. What I mean is that each of you says, I belong to Paul, or I belong to Apollos, or I belong to Cephas, or I belong to Christ. Was Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I'm thankful that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, lest anyone should say that you were baptized in my name. Christ did not send me to baptize but to preach the gospel. Now with eloquent wisdom, lest the power, lest the course of Christ be emptied of his power. So what are you saying? Is that there's factions in the community, and depending on who baptized you, you were one of his people. And uh, each one was saying, Well, you know, I'm superior to those who were baptized by somebody else. 
because I had a, a more famous or better known apostle or Christian preacher. So he's saying that, uh, you know, you're saying that the conflicts have gotten nasty at times. Some members taking others to court over their differences. On top of that, immorality was evidently rampant. This was not the happy community of the faithful that Paul had envisioned, especially compared to the model church that was there in Thessalonica. And the information from Paul's other source was equally troubling. So he's getting, you know, personal information, word of mouth from Chloe's people. And then there's another source information that's troubling to him. It appears that he received a letter from some of the Corinthians in which they expressed their different opinions on some crucial matters. They saw Paul's judgment. Where to get his advice. Chapter 7, verse 1. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, well for a man not to touch a woman, but because of the temptation to immorality, each man should have his own wife, each woman her own husband. So what are some of the problems? Okay. The letter had been brought by three members of the church, Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus. Achaicus. Evidently, they waited for Paul to write a reply. He mentions that later on in chapter 16. Now the issues that they raised in their letter were of some serious importance. For example, if some people in the congregation have been teaching, it was not right even for married couples to have sex. So Paul writes 1 Corinthians to deal with the various problems and issues that had arisen, that had been broached. The straightforward answers, Paul deals with each problem in turn. From Paul's perspective, one big problem evidently underlay all of these specific problems. That's an issue that's the rock bed of all the problems. Paul's perspective is best seen toward the conclusion of his letter. Good rhetorical style, Paul provides at the end the key to what has come before. He begins chapter 15 by summarizing the content of the gospel message that he preached to the Corinthians, namely the message of Christ's death and resurrection. That's the heart and soul of the message that he preaches, Christ's death and resurrection. Then he draws out the implications of this message. In verses 5 to 8 in chapter 15, Paul doesn't attempt to prove that Jesus was raised from the dead, by citing a group of witnesses. He's not trying to demonstrate to the Corinthians something they don't believe. He's reminding them of something they already know, namely that Jesus was raised bodily from the dead. So one of the things that they must keep in mind. Now for Paul, Jesus' resurrected body was a glorified spiritual body. 
He was risen from the dead now. His resurrected body was a glorified spiritual body. It wasn't like the mortal flesh that we ourselves are stuck with. It was an actual body that could be seen and recognized. Which is that in chapter 15, verses 5 to 8, as well as verses 35 to 41. So Paul's point is that the exalted existence that Jesus entered involved the total transformation of his body. Chapter 15, 42 to 49. And chapter 15, verses 53 to 54. It wasn't some kind of ethereal existence which his disembodied soul was elevated to the realm of divinity. His was a bodily resurrection. It wasn't like the Greek philosophers who thought when you died, your soul escaped your body. Your soul was what was going to last forever. Your body was going to corrupt. This was not. Jesus had a bodily resurrection. His body was raised, not his soul, just... The reason this matters becomes clear in the context of Paul's response. There were some in Corinth who were saying that there was no such thing as the resurrection of bodies from the dead. This is one of the things that they're circulating. There's no bodily resurrection from the dead. Paul spends most of this chapter 15 demonstrating that since Christ was raised bodily from the dead, since he is the first fruits of the resurrection, then there is going to be a future resurrection of the dead. When Christians come to participate in Christ's exalted status, when they themselves are raised in glorious immortal bodies. Here's where it ties in. It's then, okay, when they are raised in glorious immortal bodies, that Christian believers will enjoy the full benefits of their salvation. All the end has not yet come. Despite the claims of some people, Christians do not yet have the full benefits of salvation. They're not yet exalted to a heavenly status. The elect are living in a world of sin and evil. They'll continue to do so until the end comes. So, you know, to those people who think they are now living in resurrection time or Exaltation time, Paul says, no. Your bodies are not going to be exalted like Christ's body was exalted until the Lord comes back again. Then you will be exalted. Until then, you're going to live in a world of sin and evil. So to think that you're immune somehow or other, that uh, you're immune immune to things of this world is not true until the final day. 
Now, this basic message underlies not just chapter 15, but all of the letter to 1 Corinthians. Okay, to some extent, each of the problems experienced by the Corinthian congregation is related to the basic failure to recognize the limitations and dangers of Christian existence in the age before the end. To fool yourself to think that you are now in glory land, not in a veil of tears, you're fooling yourself. There are going to be problems and difficulties and things right up to the very end. Now, the first problem of Paul attacks in chapters 1 to 4 is the divisions within the church that were caused by leaders claiming to be spiritually superior to one another. Adhering to the teachings of various predecessors predecessors like Paul, Kephas, Apollos, or Christ. So, depending on who baptized them and brought them into the faith, okay, they claim to be superior to the others. And you might expect Paul to insist that the faction that lined up with him was right, because he talks about some people claiming, saying, oh, but these are the good people. Well, the rest are a fool. Instead, he insists that all of the sides, even his, are in error. People go bragging about, you know, their superiority because they baptized or brought to the faith by Paul. He says, no, they're in error because they have elevated the status of individual leaders on the basis of their superior wisdom and superhuman power. Leaders themselves, who were left unnamed, have apparently agreed on one major point, wisdom and power indicate the superior standing of those who have already been exalted to enjoy the privilege and benefits of the exalted life in Christ. Just repeat that. The leaders themselves were left unnamed. These are the people that are claiming I'm lost Paul, Apollos, Cephas, etc. They agreed on one thing, that wisdom and power indicate the superior standing those who have already been exalted to enjoy the privileges and benefits of exalted life in Christ. Now for Paul, a high elevation of wisdom and power represents a fundamental misunderstanding of the gospel. What does he say? The gospel is not about human wisdom and human power. These things may be impressive and attractive, by normal standards. He says, ironically, God works not through what appears to be wise and powerful, but through what appears to be foolish and weak. That's where God works his power. What could be more apparently foolish and weak than the plan to save the world through a crucified man, Paul says. God shows his power through his crucified son. According to Paul's gospel, that's precisely what God has done. By so doing, has shown that human power and wisdom have no part to play in the salvation of the world. The world is not saved by human power or human wisdom. It goes on to note that the congregation as a whole and he himself 
are scarcely powerful and wise by normal standards. God does not work in human ways. Paul points out that the very existence of several of the Corinthians' problems shows the Corinthian believers had not been exalted to the heavenly heights. <laughs> if they were, they wouldn't have any problems. But they have. They have lots of them. He says the wise and powerful leaders of this community have been unable to deal with the most basic issues. They've got problems on their hands, they don't know what to do with them. They haven't recognized how shameful it is for a man to sleep with his stepmother or for others to rely on civil law courts instead of the wise judgment of those in the community. By foolishly thinking that they are already exalted and ruling with Christ, these believers overlook the real and present dangers in their daily existence. I think they're immune to ordinary problems. They don't see that there are still evil forces in the world, which will infect the congregation if allowed to enter. He says they don't see that it if women fail to wear head coverings during church services, they're susceptible to the invasion of evil angels who might pollute the entire body of believers. He says, women fail to wear head coverings during church services, they're susceptible to the invasion of evil angels who might pollute the entire body of believers, the whole congregation. Nor do they realize that those who have been united with Christ can infect the entire body and they become united with a prostitute. So what he's saying is that basically if you feel you are part of the body of Christ, when you have sex with a prostitute, who's having sex with a prostitute? Body of Christ. Body of Christ, yeah. Everybody. Yeah. So he's trying to prove them. He says, you know, uh, you haven't in an exalted position at all. In addition, the Corinthian sense of self-exaltation in Paul's judgment has made them ultimately unconcerned about how to treat one another in this sinful and fallen world. That's why when they get together for the Eucharist, you know, they're not concerned about the needs and the poverty of others in the community. Many have engaged in uncontrolled acts of ecstasy in worship services, prophesying and speaking in tongues not to benefit others who are in attendance, but simply to elevate themselves in the eyes of others. So why are they speaking in tongues? Is it to, for the benefit of the other members of the congregation or to puff up themselves? From their own vantage point, they may understood their worship activities as signs of their participation in the heavenly resurrected existence that is believers in Christ. This is not the heavenly divine worship that they're involved in. And Paul believes these activities reveal something else. Those who engage in them have forgotten that the Spirit gives gifts to the members of a congregation so that they can benefit and serve others, not exalt themselves. 
talks about the different gifts. They're all for building up the body of Christ. Anyone who has all the gifts that can be given by the Spirit, but who fails to love his or our brothers and sisters in Christ, still in total poverty. Where do we hear that? The famous passage, 1 Corinthians 13, when you read at weddings, I was patient, kind of patient. This is 1 Corinthians 13, the famous love chapter, favorite passage of Christian weddings. The passage doesn't speak of love in the abstract or about sentiment or sexual passion. It's about the use of spiritual gifts in the church. If the gifts are not used to benefit others, then they are of no use. So those who think they are in this exalted state with Christ, because they have no concern about anybody else, Paul says, that's the problem. You're still living in this world, and you must be concerned about one another. Whatever gifts you receive from God, these gifts are to be used for the benefit of others, building up with the church of Christ, not for yourself. Paul's notion that Christian love is to guide ethical behavior in this evil age explains the number of positions he takes in this letter. So one prominent example is his position on meat offered to idols. We spoke about that a minute ago. A problem that, of course, has ceased to be an issue now. But meat that was sold to pagan temples could be purchased at a discount. Why? When a certain. Maybe the meat was considered already used since it was offered to a god. Maybe it was left over from a pagan festival. In any event, some of the Corinthian Christians, those who probably were less educated or from the lower classes, thought that to eat such meat was tantamount to sharing in idolatry. They would not touch it on any condition. Others, those who were more highly educated, probably from the upper classes, claimed superior knowledge in this case, pointing out that idols had no real existence since there are no other gods than the one true God of Israel. So eating that meat didn't do any harm. Probably would save money. Now, Paul agrees that although Christians are completely free to do as they wish when their consciences are clear, they should remember that their behavior or actions can be misinterpreted by other believers who don't think as they do. So, although Paul agrees that the other gods don't exist, he disagrees that it's proper to eat the meat. And his reasoning is this. Those who see a Christian eating such meat may be encouraged to do so themselves while thinking that the gods do exist. They would be encouraged to do something they themselves think is wrong. And this could harm their conscience. So rather than behaving in ways that might eventually hurt somebody, believers should do everything to help others, even if it involves avoiding something that in itself is not wrong. A mature believer will give up his or her right to eat sacrificed meat in order to respect a fellow Christian's sensitive conscience. Well, I mean, that's the case in a lot of things today. You know, you can do something that's perfectly right, but you know, people might take it the wrong way. So you say, you know, what are the chances of them taking it wrong? Yeah, pretty good. 
well, I still have a right to do what I want. But, you know, if somebody has a more sensitive, scrupulous conscience, it's scandalized. But, uh, you know, I just, uh, I remember I had one pastor, uh, or a saintly guy. I was there during the summer, and I was heading out to uh, Columbus. They had a picnic, summer picnic. So I was going out with a sport shirt and a pair of shorts and you know, swimming trunks and towel and everything. Where are you going? I'm going to, you can't go out like that. Where's your cassock? Summertime. Yeah, I said, they know who I am. I said, I'm not trying to, you know, pretend I'm somebody else, but they invited me to a picnic where there's going to be swimming. I don't wear my cassock to that. But I mean, you know, it's not quite comparable things, but sometimes, you know, he was from the old school. You know, priests always had a dress like a priest, no matter where they were. Uh, but, uh, you know, in a sense, you know, it was a scandal. I explained to him, you know, they told me to come in, uh, you know, casual clothes because he was swimming, et cetera, and all that. So, you know, he, he finally, he, you know, he understood that. But, I mean, there are times when people may, you know, uh, think certain things have to be done by Christians. Or, you know, years ago, the Catholic was eating meat on Friday. Well, maybe there's a reason. Maybe they're allergic to fish or something else. And, uh, or maybe they went someplace and that was the only thing they served. What are they going to do? Tell the cook, I'm not eating that? Mm-hmm. Sometimes, you know, you say, okay. But then again, if that's going to scandalize everybody, you might say, to you know, I don't, do you, you know, do you have something else? Do you have a sandwich or something? This is Catholic. So you have to weigh whether what you have a right to do, no matter what, as opposed to the effect and the, uh, you know, scandal it might cause to other people. They might take it the wrong way. So that's what Paul is saying, you know, I know and you know that there are no other gods but the God of Israel. But you have people who in their past believed in false gods and uh, they worship meat to idols. Now they see some of their buddies offering this meat to idols. You know, uh, they don't want to eat it because they realize in the past it was connected with pagan worship. You realize there's no pagan gods. So you're free to do what you want. But it says you got to take into account how it's going to impact others. So Paul interrupts his argument to insert a vigorous defense of his apostolic authority. And he gives examples of ways in which he has sacrificed his personal freedoms to benefit others. The rights that Paul has voluntarily give up, given up Okay. differences between his style of life and that practiced by leaders of the Jerusalem church. Unlike Peter, Jesus' brothers, and the other apostles, Paul gives up the privilege of taking a wife or accepting money for his missionary services. The other apostles can be married. You know, Peter had a mother-in-law, so you don't get a mother-in-law unless you have a wife. So you presume he was married. And uh, it was the common thing in those days. Most of them would have been married men. So he says he gives up the privilege of taking a wife, but also for accepting money for his missionary services. Like he didn't want to be 
somebody's somebody be a patron and take care of his his needs. So he says, no, I give up. I gotta work with my hands. I gotta not be a burden on anybody. Even sacrifices his own inclinations and individuality. He says because I become everything to everyone. Even though the issue of eating sacrifice meat has long since disappeared, the principle Paul articulates in this matter remains relevant to many believers today. Paul asked the strong Corinthians and us imitate his selfless example. The need to love one another and to behave in ways that are most useful to the Christian community is directly related to the fact that evil still prevails in this world. Since Christians still live in an age dominated by the forces of evil, not yet exalted, and are not altogether free to do whatever their superior knowledge permits them to do. So you have to take the context that, okay, not everybody uh, thinks as you do or feels as you do or looks at things the same way we do. Uh, so he's just saying that you're not in this exalted state. Everybody is free from evil, from scandal, wherever else. You still have to realize you're living in this evil world. And even though you have a superior knowledge, you know better about certain things. Okay, out of love for others, you may refrain from doing certain things. So his demand to live largely for other people's benefit and to accommodate one's conduct to others' consciences raises some important issues, though. Okay, although Paul's argument protects the sensibilities of believers who are less free thinking places the intellectually aware Christian at the mercy of the over-scrupulous and the limited-minded believers and could seriously compromise Paul's doctrine of Christian freedom. So he's saying, you know, you might be, you're worried about offending anybody in anything. Now, they make you a prisoner in the sense that you have no freedom. Everybody else is controlling you. And here's another example. It says, maintains that married couples shouldn't pretend they already live as angels. Sexual temptations are great in this age. Marriage is a legitimate way to overcome them in God's eyes. So he says spouses should grant one another their conjugal rights. Those who are able to withstand such sexual temptations like Paul himself, who says he has the gift, shouldn't go to the trouble of becoming married in the first place. Paul's view, his generation is living at the very end of time, and a lot of work needs to be done before Christ returns. Those who are married are obligated to take time for their spouse and to tend to their needs. It's understandable. Those who are not married can be fully committed to Christ. So he says it's better to remain single but if one can't stand the heat, it's better to marry than to burn. Now, overall, the message that Paul has for the Corinthians was not so different from the message that he had for the Thessalonians. Jesus was going to return soon. God entered into the world to judge it. When he did so, his followers would experience a glorious salvation. So then, however, believers were compelled to live in this world. Their exaltation was a future event, not a present reality. So in Corinth, Paul saw a community that was divided against itself 
tolerated immoral and scandalous behaviors while claiming to enjoy an exalted standing with Christ. So we have all those things. They're divided among themselves, tolerating immoralist and scandalous behavior, and they're, they consider themselves as enjoying an exalted standing with Christ. All is exasperated in disbelief. You're living a heavenly existence. All is concerned. This was a major church in his mission field. It had gone astray from the basic intent of his gospel. He treated the Corinthians as friends, but realized that he was at odds with a number of them on significant issues. Okay, unfortunately, the situation didn't improve once they received this letter. Now, next week we'll go into specific issues of marriage, divorce, celibacy, various things. Communal meal eating the Eucharist will touch them briefly. We're also going to do, uh, what did I say, Second Corinthians, and then we'll also hopefully get to Romans. Okay? So looking ahead, so Romans will be. And I'll also, uh, we do Ephesians, we'll talk about that passage uh, where uh, Paul talks about wives must be submissive to their husbands, which nobody wants to preach about. Nobody wants to read. Like, you find a way. To, oh, I, I'm not available that Sunday. Uh, nobody wants to sit, uh, get up there in the congregation where their wife is looking at them and saying, yeah. well, we're going to talk about what that really says. It doesn't say what we think it says. And I preached one Sunday on on that passage. And it's interesting. A lot of people say, I didn't know that that's what it meant. Or when I look at the context, it is true. We're taking it, you know, in a very politically correct way. Okay. You have to look at it in the context of uh, what surrounds that particular passage. So we'll do that anyway. Okay, so have a good week. Uh, if you haven't picked your paper topic, make sure you get it to me. I'll try to turn it around within a day. I've uh, talked, or emailed a couple of people. Their passages were too short or too long. Some were two verses, some were 23 verses. Okay, you're not going to write a 10-page paper on two verses or a 10-page paper on 23 verses. You'll be writing a book. Uh, so uh, just to let me know what you're interested in, you know, I may give you a suggestion if it's too big. You might want to cut it into two and take one of the parts, etc. Okay? All right, so have a good week. Two